I know there's a lot of discourse at the moment about like, do we even need frameworks? We should just do everything in the browser. You should have multiple page applications again, but building an actual app, which is deeply reactive and there's lots of stuff happening on the screen. It's just a dream to work with. Like it's so easy to go from the UI you think of in your head to something that you can click and play around with and make react to things. Hi, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast from LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at LogRocket.com. I'm Sean, and with me today is Joe Hart, a web engineering consultant who has worked for many companies, including Risk Ledger, Lego, the BBC. He's here today to talk about his latest talk, Building Age Vampires 2 with React, Rise of the Browser. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hi, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. And uh, before we jump into the talk, do you mind us giving a little bit of an intro about your background and what you do as a web engineering consultant? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I've been working in tech for a while now, and mostly these days focus on helping teams kind of build out their front-end best practices. I like to joke, I kind of like being front-end Mary Poppins. Like I arrive, I bring some best practices, a couple of penguins and a cartoon montage and a sing and a dance and I leave back on my merry way is the selling point. But yeah, and then a lot of my kind of like tech talks and stuff has been a mixture of using some of my experience from doing stand-up comedy in my spare time to then also bringing some of that fun into the tech space to wake people up halfway through a conference day is usually the kind of technique. That's awesome. Okay. It's actually, it's not that surprising that you have a little bit of that stand-up comedy background because it was kind of like a performance, that talk, and I really urge our listeners to, uh, after this to go and watch it. It's really entertaining. So Age of Empires is an older game. Before we jump into this, do you mind telling us what Age of Empires is and then why you chose that game? Certainly. And it makes me feel old that it is now an old game. I mean, it's been an old game for a while, but in my head of like, when I was first putting the talk together, I was Googling to remember, like, when did it come out? It came out in 1999. It's a real-time strategy game. And it was just fantastic. It, it got me interested in history as a kid. And I'm sure like many people who've played it in the past kind of had the same thing. If you would play from one of the great civilizations from history and you would take it all the way from the Stone Age through to the Medieval Age, through to the Castle Age, and fundamentally fight big battles with each other. I think I must have used like it as an excuse to say it was educational to my parents and be like, oh, no, I'm definitely revising and doing homework. Definitely, definitely. But actually, I'm just like sending night rushes against castles and defending myself against the French. Yeah, I think that I had a similar game. It was kind of like a knockoff called Rise of Empires, maybe. And it was like totally slimmed down version. And it kind of the idea of building it in React reminds me of like the first React tutorial, I don't know if this is still like the tutorial if you go on React website, but it's making tic-tac-toe. And I remember having so much fun with that because it's like creating a game. And then, you know, eventually people start making user interfaces and, and stuff with React, what it's intended to be used for. But I like that it kind of harkens back to that first tutorial. Did you ever do that one? Not that one, but that thing of, of video games being like a way in to like playing with this technology. So many people I know, it's like, there's something magical about when you do something on a keyboard or a mouse or a controller or something, and then something changes on the screen. And I feel like video games are a lot of people's first way into that. And therefore, it's like this kind of way of capturing that childhood wonder, but then hopefully giving you some skills that you can turn into a job and go and build some good user interfaces for. I, I find video games particularly interesting because they're really complicated. Like video game software engineers are doing stuff that are just wildly magnitudes level complicated more than like most of the kind of crud apps that most websites are built on nowadays and i think with that you can look at pieces of technology through a kind of different lens than just building up some wireframes 
Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned that if you were building this for real, you might have used a game engine or a typed language. Like what kind of things do those help with when you're creating something as complex as a game? Definitely. Because that's the thing is like, there's just lots of math stuff, right? Of like being able to set up lighting algorithms or even pathfinding artificial intelligence, like game engines like Unity or Unreal or uh, Godot is a fantastic um, uh, open source one, which I highly recommend people try out because it gives you all of these things and lets you get to the, the state of making a game quicker. In the same way that like something like Next or Nuxt is doing a lot of the fundamental busy work of like, here's your routing, here's your page setup, here's your on mount, here's your server side rendering. So you can focus on making an app. Game engines do that for making games where you're not focusing on re-implementing like sprite collision issues for the nth millionth time. And you can just get to making a video game and start having that kind of like fun and joy and creative journey with it as quickly. Whereas building it in React, it was not necessarily joyous. And there were lots of rabbit holes I kind of got stuck down while I was in there. Yeah, you kind of had to reinvent the wheel or like those black boxes that the game engine provides for you weren't there in, in React. What were, what were some of like the most difficult aspects that you had to maybe like bend rack to your will a little bit and things that it's not built to do. I think like the fundamental kind of like deep philosophy of how React renders versus how a modern video game renders is like really the core of all the pain that the project caused me because most games will just have a core game loop where you do some setup at the top and then you loop through some logic and you update the render at the end. And within that, you'll be able to tell how much time has passed since the last render so you can update all of those things super easily. Whereas in React, it's in the name, it's reacting to state changes. It's this declarative state UI. So it isn't really built to do stuff on time. Like if you've ever tried to implement a stopwatch or anything like that in an application, you'll know the same thing where you have to pop out of React world and put it in like a set interval or in a set timeout thing. And that's where you're actually doing the stuff and kind of forcing React to render more than you want it to. Yeah, because React wants to render as little as possible for mm. performance reasons, I think. So if a dependency, one of those props is updated, then it will flow through your component tree. But yeah, like you said, you have to step out and use the use ref, which is like one of the hooks that I rarely go to, that use ref hook. Use ref is, and that, that's also the thing about React is like, because we spend a lot of time, indeed in any framework, not just the React thing of like, you spend time in the framework world, which is like you're modifying state, you're modifying props. And then things like use ref allow you to jump out of that world back into the browser DOM space, which normally React doesn't want you to touch. React is like, I know better than you. I'll deal with the DOM. I'll update things. You just deal with props and state and all that stuff. Whereas when you're trying to do stuff smoother than that, or you're trying to do it like every 60 frames per second or something like that, it's a lot easier to just go and talk directly to the DOM, directly to the browser. Because that's also, again, what it is. It's React is just a language to express what you want the browser to do, but it's just going through like several compilation steps of we're writing React application, which then compiles to a DOM description, which then goes into the browser, which then turns into machine go and we drop down all of these layers. When you're trying to do what React wants you to do, it's wonderful. And when you're trying to do something that React doesn't want you to do, then it gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, exactly. And did that influence your decision to do this all in the DOM? Was that to use React as much as possible? Or did you consider kind of other alternatives, like a canvas maybe, or, or was that cheating? Or was that against the design of the experiment? Mm. I think so, because if you end up rendering into a canvas or something, because like I've done this several times professionally when you're building some sort of graph library or, or, or so anything that's kind of dumping into a canvas, React just becomes a glorified kind of state management tool at that point. That's not as exciting. Like less can go wrong, I think. And I think with this, this was kind of me leaning in going, of, I think this would be an interesting thing. And the harder I make this, the more interesting it is going to become. So 
I wanted to create these things with dollar elements was just a lot easier of finding more interesting edge cases in the React. And also it makes a few things easier, right? So if you were rendering entirely in a canvas, if you wanted to have it where something's selectable, that's quite a complicated bit of logic to come up with. You have to check where the mouse is, you have to check what it's clicking on, you have to check the borders and all those things. Whereas with DOM elements, we have on-click handlers that give you all of that stuff just for free. And React can do that super easily. And that was kind of where a lot of these first thoughts of doing this project came from of like, ooh, what if the thing I'm selecting wasn't a checkbox, but a unit in an army or something like that, of how can you take those built-in kind of state management things and apply that to something a little bit more fun? Because all it is is a dressed up UI with some sprites of spim and under barracks thrown in. Yeah. And in the talk, you can see it all come together very quickly from like this blank web page. And then there's a moment where you like rotate the tiles in the units correctly. So they're all aligned and all of a sudden the game comes to life. So it's really interesting that you did it all in the DOM and got it to render correctly. And I want to jump back to the state management point because you used reducers. I'm curious if you stay and it became too unwieldy or what the thought process was there. Certainly. So like, I, definitely when I first booted up, I was just like, here's use state, let's put some stuff in there. And then I did the classic thing, if you dump like an object in use state, and then React doesn't handle that properly. Like it doesn't handle reactivity down to this kind of like nested nth state. And it was kind of a microcosm of every long lived website you've ever worked on where the state starts very simple and easy. And you're like, I totally know where everything is. And then you keep adding to it and it keeps growing and growing and getting more unwieldy. And it was that point where I really needed something that was going to be predictable. And that, I think, is where the use reducer thing comes in. I did years of Redux stuff in various places. So the muscles are still there for setting up actions and having dispatch functions and stuff all over the place. It also creates this like centralized place for your state to live. The other approach is I could have split that state up a little bit more because this was very much using that kind of model of having, here's this global store and we can access that from anywhere. Whereas I could have easily split up that store and aligned it in slightly more of like a domain driven kind of way where, okay, this is the component that renders units. We're also going to put all of the unit state in there. I kind of wanted to avoid using libraries, but it would have been really interesting to see, like, could I make an X state state machine that does Age of Empires, for example? Maybe that's a future project I should have a go at. <laughs> right, yeah. Toss it up on NPM for people to mod out or something. Um, <laughs> were there parts of the game where you were surprised that React just worked really well and that it, it actually you weren't breaking abstractions or poking holes in abstractions to get it to work the way you wanted it to? Basically, everything that isn't the fun, exciting part, which is like the fun, exciting part is the part of the game with units and they're fighting each other and all of that kind of stuff. The other way, whereas everything that was a UI, everything that was like a little mini map, everything that was a drop down field or a menu laid on top of another thing was super easy to do. And what I find interesting about that is usually, at least in my experience, in engines like Unity, building UI is really hard. Like, it is really difficult because it's this very old school kind of, you instantiate a piece of UI over there and then you have to manually update it and it's like maintaining this very complicated MVC style architecture. Whereas with React, being able to turn some HTML with a little bit of state into UI took like, literally like an hour or two to rebuild the UI part of Age of Empires 2, which I'm sure they spent way longer working on because they were writing it in C++ and a lot more complicated languages back then. Like, I know there's a lot of discourse at the moment about like, do we even need frameworks? We should just do everything in the browser. You should have multiple page applications again. But building an actual app, which is deeply reactive and there's lots of stuff happening on the screen, it's just a dream to work with. It's so easy to go from the UI you think of in your head to something that you can click and play around with and make React to things. Yeah, I'm sure working on that part was just a breath of fresh air after coming away from 
the complex transforms you were doing to get like the units and stuff to render by and then updating uh, resources or something uh, you know, seems more fitting to React use case. Just a quick pause here to remind you that PodRocket is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you understand exactly how users are experiencing your digital product with session replay, error tracking, product analytics, frustration indicators, performance monitoring, UX analytics, and more. Machine learning algorithms service the most impactful issues affecting your users, so you can spend your time building a better product rather than hunting through tools. Solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption with LogRocket. So jumping back to the responsiveness and running something a certain number of ticks or frames per second, what was the problem that you ran into with use effect? Like, why did you kind of have to jump down into the browser API? Yeah, the first seeds for this kind of talk was when I first watched the talk about hooks and was like, hooks coming to React. And use effects looked really interesting because I was like, oh, I bet I could build a video game using that. You have this little piece of logic that runs every time this set of dependencies changes. That's really interesting. You could do a lot of fun stuff with that. Originally, I was thinking, could I do a turn-based Final Fantasy style game using that? And then when coming to this, I was like, oh, I could put the core game loop in here. So the first kind of real interactivity I tried to add in was being able to scroll as you move your cursor to the left or the right-hand side. So I was like, this is easy. This is super easy. I'll just whack it in some state, run the use effect, and we'll be totally fine. But then it only changes when that data is changing, only does that code run, which is not what you want. In some games, I think you could totally get away with that kind of thing. And I think that would be a really interesting experiment to go and build maybe something more turn-based or try and build Final Fantasy or like a scaled-down version of Civilization using just use effects to manage turns and things like that and entirely reactively generate the UI based on like a core state model. But in this case, it was trying to go, okay, how do we get React to render more often and more predictably in a smooth way? Because much like UI development, video game development depends on feeling good. And unfortunately, that kind of isn't something you can measure. But like when I was playing around with just doing the use effect and even doing a set interval or trying to just make it constantly update the state, it just didn't feel quite correct. Yeah, and that's just kind of something you have to experience as a user. And there's this whole part of the life cycle of game development, which is like the playtesting that we don't, I mean, we have a little bit in web development, like user accessibility, testing, those kind of things. But I think, you know, there's more emphasis on it in developing games. And so that makes a ton of sense that you just have to know when you're interacting with it. And that's the thing is like to get to that creative kind of loop in game dev. And I think this is true for UI stuff as well. Of You want to get to the point where it's running and you can click on it like as soon as possible. This is why I really like tools like Storybook or doing component testing inside Cypress or Playwright or something where you can get what you're working on to be clickable and usable as soon as possible. Because otherwise you can get all the way to the very end and go, oh, that just doesn't quite feel right. Or that isn't quite intuitive. And I, ideally it is fully within the situ of the page and so on and so forth. And like, there are many different ways to make that quicker as well, like in the UI space where if you have a well-built out component library, you can take a wireframe and build something super quickly by going, oh, I have all these pre-built things, let's get it to running. Whereas other stuff is a little bit trickier, but trying to reduce that feedback loop to the point where you can start feeling creative, I think is very important in both UI stuff and game development stuff. Are there parts of React that you think you'll like take away from this project and then use now in your day-to-day? Or are the parts that you really had to kind of dive deep into are those a matter of the game requiring them, but our normal UI development doesn't necessitate them? 
I think definitely use ref because like very similarly to you, I like use ref. I'd never really touched. It'd never come up. My hooks are mostly use state, use effects, and occasionally like a use memo if I'm feeling a bit excitable. But use ref was really interesting of figuring out what it can do. Because like even just from reading the docs, I would kind of get it. Maybe I would want to do this or maybe I need to keep a hold to this thing and pass it around or something. But being able to use it to go, oh, now I can directly reference the DOM outside of the React lifecycle. And because the main problem itself for me was inside request animation frame, which is allowed us to do the really smooth rendering you can't access mutative state in that like if state changes you can't access it within that scope whereas using a ref you can pass around anything you want in various places so i think i'm really tempted to try and uh, maybe as a side project or if i can convince some people i'm working with at the moment to do some cool animation stuff with the request animation frame of like adding some smooth transitions doing those kind of things would be a nice place to apply that knowledge in UI. But it's usually the kind of um, domain of library makers or plugin makers who are far cleverer people than I am. I'm just some guy who makes stuff to do those smooth bits and stuff. And it was a nice way of really digging into the depth of those things that I rarely do as a product engineer, where I'm just smashing together Lego bricks that connect with each other really most of my time. So it was nice to dig deeper into that kind of stuff and go, how does this actually work? What are the edges of it? How can I make it do what I want it to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think it sounds like such a great opportunity to dive into the parts of React that we don't use in our day-to-day. You know, going back to that first tic-tac-toe tutorial, I feel inspired to do more games uh, in React. This is putting my philosophical hat of like, it's really interesting that like, people's journeys with computing and, and tech and software engineering of like, usually you get into it because it's kind of fun and it's kind of cool. You do a little tic-tac-toe tutorial or you're making a little game or you're making a website about some hobby you love or something like that. And then at some point, a few years passed and you're doing Webpack config changes and it's not as fun as it was when you first got started. And I think it's nice to do little things like on the side to just remind you kind of like why you got into it in the first place, especially given that the focus these days is so heavily on you should have a side project, you should have this SaaS business that's going to make you money in your sleep or something like that. Maybe there's more value before doing that or as well as doing that of go and make a silly thing, go and make a game for your friends, go and make, you know, tic-tac-toe, but put your partner's face in it or something, something just a little bit kind of fun. And you might be surprised about what you figure out while you're in there building the fun thing. Yeah, I totally agree, especially because so many of us got drawn into this field for the creative aspects of it. And like you said, coming from video games, maybe someone was making a mod or a game. And yeah, I think it's important to like keep stoking those flames. There was a library, or there is a library, P5.js. I don't know if you've seen that one before, but it's all around just like creative coding and making art with JavaScript. And that's such a fun one. Yeah, I love uh, P5. After I did my computer science degree, I had an artistic crisis and I did an interaction design degree instead. And their one rule was you're not allowed to make any apps or websites, which was kind of why I went there to go and do it. But back then it was called P3. It was like two versions behind. But lots of really cool machine learning stuff, creating images from people's faces, manipulating things. And if you want to really do like creative stuff, go and do a bunch of P5 stuff and then go buy a projector. And then you can do wild stuff with like putting stuff on walls, doing installations. Like with webcams, you can do so much stuff with image manipulation, things like that. Because when you start doing coding at a real job, like you're on a dev team of like five or more people, you're getting wireframes and a product manager and deadlines and you're in an estimation meeting. Being able to code, I think, is fundamentally creative. And it's like sometimes it gets typecast as this left brain, right brain, scientific. It can only be these things, but it is incredibly creative. And being able to have a bit of an outlet for that kind of thing, I think is is really good fun. Plus, I love seeing the weird stuff people build. So 
if anyone is listening to this and does build some weird stuff, please send it to me. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, but sorry, you got distracted from your talk back to <laughs> the Age of Empires. I guess like if you had to pick a video game to do this with next, what would you choose? You mentioned Final Fantasy. Yes, Final Fantasy, because I think fundamentally it has to be a video game I really love. Final Fantasy is definitely one up there. I'm really tempted to try Pokemon 1, mainly because I'm having somewhat of a Pokemon renaissance at the moment. I've been replaying all the games on the DS because I never had a DS and I've been replaying all of those and they're absolutely fantastic. But the thing I really want to try, mainly because I think it will be really, really difficult, but I think it could be really cool, is doing a game with multiplayer and trying to build in using some sort of WebSocket API and even trying to maybe, if I could do it as a talk in a, in a live place, get the audience playing along, something like that. Whether it's just taking Age of Empires and making a multiplayer version or trying to take some like early MMO, can we do RuneScape? But in JS and make everyone in the room play it. Those kind of things I'm excited to play with, mainly because I've never done any kind of multiplayer coding or anything like that before. And I have no idea how difficult it is, but I'd love to find out. Yeah, that sounds super cool. The multiplayer aspect kind of reminds me of the, the Twitch stream that was like everyone plays Pokemon together and like control the inputs. I don't know if that was like that path you're going to of having everyone control like the same character, but just reminded me of that. I, all of those things as well, because like I've done some of this kind of stuff in my stand-up shows before. One I would often do is the video game Flappy Bird, where really it's just one button that you tap and you go up and you have to dodge through these spikes and stuff. I would do a version of that live with people where it was controlled by the audience's cheers, where if they cheered really loudly, the bird would go up and then if they were quiet, the bird would fall back down again. And it was just really good fun making a room entirely full of people cheer at me was very enjoyable although it would create a weird experience to my producer who was stood just outside the room while the gig was going on but they thought i would be doing really well and then they went completely silent again and then really well and then completely silent again yeah that that does sound super entertaining and then although then when you you die in the game you disappoint everyone at once yes <laughs> and it was like thank you for coming <laughs> yeah so you had to deal with like character movement and controls a lot when you made age of empires in rack so I was kind of curious about the internals of how that works because you mentioned the vector maps. And yeah, do you mind just jumping into that piece of it? Yeah, definitely. Because that's the thing is, I remember doing vectors in school when I was like 14 or 15 and being like, this is useless. I'm never going to use this ever. Why would I ever need to know this? And then I've used it all the time for any kind of game development stuff. This is one of those things where we were talking about earlier around things that game engines give you for free. They often have nice class objects that are like, give me a two-dimensional vector. Here it is, and here are all your methods on it. And you can get the distance of it. You can get the magnitude of it. You can add two of them together. You can multiply them. You can rotate them, whatever you want. Go crazy. That I didn't have. I don't think there are any primitives for that in JavaScript. You could possibly use a library for doing vector stuff. But I was like, I want to do this with just normal maths. And it was just interesting of going... Because obviously, so how you figure out where a unit is going, you have where it currently is, and then where you right-click on the map where it should go. But that only gives you this like total distance, right? I need to go from here to there. And what we were talking about earlier with having a request animation frame where I need to move it a little bit at a time, suddenly you then have to go, well, okay, if I'm currently here and I need to move fully over there, how do I split that up in a smooth way so that at a certain speed for a certain unit, we can get there in a particular amount of time? And given, you know, different units, they'll move at different speeds. If I have a knight, they'll go super fast. If I have a catapult, they'll go super slowly. And for that, it was just a case of like, I say cracking out old, old textbooks as if I still have a maths textbook on my shelf, but I, I googled how vector maths works and went to Wolfram Alpha and, and figured all of this stuff out again. You're square rooting that I can't remember the equations off the top of my head. I'm sure these days you could also just ask chat GPT those kind of things. But interestingly, there was a failed bit 
of trying to make this work, which I didn't put in the talk because I didn't have time to talk about it. But I originally started off trying to do this entirely with CSS transitions, where instead of me like manually updating the current position of the unit, I would instead just set the position it should be and have it translated using a CSS, translate X, translate Y, transform on it, and then just do it with CSS animations. And it sort of worked, but like not really. It would always take the exact same amount of time, no matter how far you clicked. So if you clicked just next to it, it would take a second to move. And if you clicked halfway across the map, it would zoom across there super quickly, which was quite visually entertaining, but it wasn't uh, exactly what I needed from the game. It adds a different layer to the game, right? If you can just like jump off of whoever can click the furthest is going to win, it'll be totally fine. Yeah, totally it would change the strategy and you know, maybe it would be really fun. Who knows? So you have the vector math, like figure out where units need to go. And then how do you go about mapping that back to the DOM? With the individual kind of elements in the DOM, they were all placed absolutely. So they all had an absolute, an X and a Y. This mainly came from when I was trying to generate the grid that the map should generate on. For those of you who played Age of Empires, you'll know what it looks like. But if you haven't, it's an isometric grid. So like diamonds drawing these particular things. And I had to do some maths to make sure they were all placed in the correct place on the map. And then doing that for units as well, you can reuse the same logic. So it becomes a lot easier for those kind of things. But the usefulness of doing all of the vector maths, of being able to go, okay, this is the overall direction we're going. This is the unit. This is the magnitude, all that stuff. It was super easy to figure out what direction everything was going in. Thankfully, all the main assets in Age of Empires are all like aligned with, you know, if you have a spearman and a spearman walking up, there's an up one, there's a top, up to the left, a left, a bottom left, and a bottom one. Interestingly, they don't duplicate left and right. They're just mirrored. When I first extracted the assets, I was like, I'm missing half of the things. How do I make it move to the top and the right? And then I was like, of course, Joe, you fool. You can just flip them around and it will totally work. Because it was from that kind of era of every megabyte on that CD-ROM, all, I want to say, 700 megs? I think it's 700 megs on a CD. I can't really remember. It's been a long time. But like every megabyte on the CD needed to be accounted for. So why would you duplicate those kind of things? And thankfully, there are loads of like modding tools out there for Age of Empires, which let me extract all of those as GIFs. And then you can just load them in and just set. And this is where the DOM comes in. Super useful as well of like switching out the image that is in the background of a DOM element is super quick. And you can just do that with a class or you can do that with a state or like a CSS variable that's passed in. And the browser is really good at reacting to those kind of changes. The interesting bit is I've only ever tested it with 10 units or something. Like what happens if you have 200 units in there and they're all going in places and doing things and would the browser totally screw that up? Yeah, like in the end game with a massive army, how does the game perform? Is it still playable? That would be, that'd be really interesting to see. Yeah, totally. Because also that's a problem like we do all the time with UI stuff as well. I've done it countless times where I've built a nice piece of UI and this works for the three examples I have in it. And then in production, someone has like 20 in a list of these things or a thousand of listing things and you suddenly go, oh no, that doesn't quite work properly. So it's like that kind of stress testing at one particular end is a good skill to have in any kind of development. Yeah, absolutely. So now I have to ask, if someone comes to you and is interested in making a game, what would you recommend to them to get started with uh, Engine or React? I think it depends on what your objective is. If your objective is to learn more about React, I say go and build something React because I think it's really fun. If your objective is to just kind of have fun and make a game, then I would say absolutely go and use a game engine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean 
that you're not going to make something in the browser. Like Godot and Unity definitely have things that will export their programs to WebAssembly. You can run them on the web. There are also JavaScript-based ones. I think there's one called Pixel.js, which does a lot of stuff. And also, if you want to be mega, mega hipster, there's a whole thing called virtual consoles or fake consoles or fantasy consoles. There's a thing called the Pico 8, which is like a fake console that has a certain limit of RAM and stuff. So you can only create very small games for it and you have to use like a custom basic coding language. They're really cool. I highly recommend checking them out. But equally, even if you're listening to this, and I know you're not a coder, you don't want to learn anything about programming, you can go and use stuff like, there's a thing called GB Studio, which creates Game Boy games just with like click and drag and everything. You can go and make an amazing Pokemon game, but about whatever wonderful local wildlife you have wherever you live or any of those things. I realize I haven't given an answer there and that I just gave like seven different options for people to try. No, but I think that totally makes sense. It just depends on where you're coming from and what your goals are. Yeah, totally. I, my only solid piece of advice is I think everyone should go and try and make a game. Whether you can code or not, there's loads of tools out there to do it. I think it's really fun. And also you don't have to make the best game ever. You can just make a game for your friend or just yourself. And you can put it online or you can just email it to someone or whatever you want. Or you can go fool the whole hog and I don't know, go make the next Stardew Valley or the next patch quest or something like that. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Before we wrap, is there anything else you want to plug? Obviously, to our listeners, go watch the talk, but anything else that you have online that you want to direct folks to? I have a poorly updated blog at joehart.co.uk. I have made a few silly video games that are on joehart.fun. You can play Katamari node modules on there, which is where you play a node modules folder, and you have to try and grow as large as possible. And then in the very serious business sense, yep, I'm a front-end consultant. If you are living in a place where you're like, we need a front-end Mary Poppins, I'm not available now, but who knows when you're listening to this episode, maybe for in the future. Find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, I'm at Joe Hart. On Mastodon, I'm at Joe Hart at social.lol. Come and say hi. And also, most specifically, if you go and make a cool little game, send it to me. I would love to play it. Awesome. Thank you. 